What's good, family? This is Dijon. You are tuned in to the Souls of Society podcast, where we have conversations that inspire compassion, facilitate deeper connection, and allow for co-creation to happen so that we can build the new earth that we were all wanting to experience. Tune into this vibration where we meet at a soul level to let our essences shine through. And if you want to help this community grow, we would love if you would give this podcast a five-star review wherever you're listening or like, subscribe, and share it with one of your friends. Enjoy the vibrations. And as always, if you want to connect deeper, you can do that at soulsofsociety.com or at, at Souls of Society on all social media platforms. All right, let's get into the episode. All right. All right. Here with the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Eric Rias. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Right, it's Rios. Ryan? Yeah. Rios? Yeah, it, no one knows. It's not my, it's not our last name, you know? So. <clears throat> All right, well, it's good to have you here, brother. Thank you. So maybe if you just want to start off with how long you've been in San Diego okay. and what brought you here. Okay, so I've been in San Diego since 2016. And I got sober in the Coachella Valley and decided, I'm being from New York, I decided I didn't want to, didn't want to live in the Coachella Valley anymore. <laughs> it's uh, Palm Springs area was a little too dry for me. And uh, I was struggling out there and things weren't going, those other things were going bad, they're so dry. So I moved to, I wanted to move to a city. I didn't want to move to San Francisco. That was too far from everybody I knew. And I didn't want to move to LA because I really don't fuck with LA. So I was like, let's go to San Diego. And uh, I just picked up and moved to El Cajon and <laughs> lived in a trailer. I lived in a manufactured trailer with my two dogs. So it was just you? Just me, didn't know a soul. And could you describe the specific circumstances right before you moved? I just, I was with my now ex-partner, but I was with her right before I moved. And she knew, you know, we all know, I just had to, I just, this, the desert was too small for me and just didn't have the economic opportunity that I wanted to. Like the, all the things that I do, the podcasting and all the things that I dreamed for my life, it couldn't happen there. It just, it was too small of a place for it to happen. And what was it like right when you got here since you moved by yourself? Lonely. Lonely. I have an interesting story. It's more than just lonely. It, it got dark for a while. I, I deal with bipolar disorder, bipolar one. And I stopped taking medication shortly after moving here. Cause that's what every mental health person who struggles, that's what we do. We feel good and we stopped taking a medication. So that's what I did. And went on a sick one for about eight, two years of sex and money and sober, all sober. But, and then trying to figure out after I had that mental health relapse the whole time I'm trying to figure out my mental health, the right combination of medications and some medications made my liver shut down. Some made me shake. It was just like an experiment. That's part of the, th one of the things that mental, that people would struggle with mental health. I want to say clients because I work with the clients now, but I'm one of them as well. But uh, that's something that we deal with is this experiment of which medication will work and the side effects and the pain that goes along with that. And did you have a doctor or somebody yeah. you were trying to figure this stuff out when you were here? Yeah, I've seen 
in my life, I've seen 20 or 30 doctors, but while I was in San Diego, I've probably seen six or seven. So you were off of your medication and then you stayed off of it. And tried to find new ones. And tried to find new ones. And you said your life was in a, like this party. That is part, not party, but sex addiction. Okay, sex it addiction. It was sex addiction and like straight up psychosis. Straight up, I couldn't sit still for more than a minute and I couldn't stop having sex with people. And the, the having sex with people was to feel better. You know what I mean? I just wanted to feel better and uh, I got a, like the talking, like the build up of the building of the relationship, culminating in the sex, culminating in the sex act, made, brought some sense of relief. And that's all I've ever wanted in my whole life was relief. My life was, has been me trying to find relief. And still, and to this day, I found way more healthy ways to find relief through meditation, through exercise, through nutrition, through 12 steps. So it was all about relief and that's what sex addiction provided. I just, that's what I needed at the time. We were all doing what we needed. We were all doing our best at the time. Even a heroin addict is doing his best thinking. You know what I mean? He's just trying to be okay. I, my ex had a hard time really understanding that because I was with her throughout this time. She had a really hard time understanding that, hey, this is not me cheating at you. This is me just trying to be, feel okay in my own skin for a minute. And it worked until it stopped working. And it ultimately broke up my family. I'm divorced, I'm separated out. So she moved with you to San Diego? No, she, she stayed out in the desert and I commuted back and forth because she had a small child and then she got pregnant and then we both had our son. We still have our son. We still share custody of him which is challenging to talk about. But I'm talking about it, but it's just, it's a, being a dad and all that comes with that and going through a separation, all that comes with that, because I'm going through that currently. So all that comes with that and it's adult, like real life is in session. Adult life is in session. And you said you are originally from New York? From Queens, yes, St. Albans. Okay. Yeah. And when in your life did you start noticing you were having some sort of like mental health difficulty? Now, in retrospect, I, I've noticed a, a new, my first feelings were discomfort. I, my first memories were being uncomfortable in my own skin. So in retrospect, I've known all along, I just couldn't identify it. But really when it started to take a turn, it's, when it started to take a turn, it was uh, 13, 12, 13, when I started doing drugs and, and my friends could stop and I could not. And when I would do drugs, I would have a illicit, like acute reaction where I would lose all mental control. I would go into psychosis, I would cry, I would, I just, I'd be violent. There was a lot of violence in my story. I was the perpetrator. And that's when I, I didn't know, in retrospect, I just, this is the only reality that I knew. This is the only, that at the time, my parents were scrambling to be like, what's going on? What's going on with our son? I have great parents and they never gave up for me, still support all my wild dreams, but it took a turn. My brother went away to college when I was 13, so I, I fell in with the kids who were smoking weed. I always say, we're all fucking our lives up now. So I felt, and I grew up, it's a predominantly white neighborhoods where I was the only black kid. And I felt that there was a racial discomfort as well. And then I was sexually, I was molested as well. So there's always that discomfort with my sexuality. And then there was this feeling of discomfort. So it was all the perfect storm and the mental health component. It's all this perfect storm of discomfort and chaos. And the drugs brought ease and comfort that I was looking for until it stopped working, which has stopped working quite quickly. So you have one brother? 
an older brother and a younger sister. Yeah. Okay. And were your parents together when you grew up? My parents are still together. Rocky, 30, 35 years. I don't know how they're doing it, but yeah, 30 something years of marriage. And I still speak, I speak to both of them and black people. We have parents who love us too. I know some people don't always think that, but I have two great parents who were successful, been their public servants, been in healthcare, in medicine for a long time. Yeah. yeah, so you've been feeling this discomfort for as long as you can remember, and you were basically trying to appease your trauma that you were experiencing in your body from, you said, being molested and also going to a predominantly white school in a white neighborhood. And uh, yeah. were there any people that you were able to connect with? Yeah, yeah, I, I always had friends. So it, it, even still to this day, it's never a problem of making friends. Well, now I'm more aloof because of my experience with abandonment of friends. But because of the mental health challenges, I wasn't able to maintain friendships because people were like, yo, this is full stripping. You know what I mean? And so it was never a matter of not having friends. And then the people I used with friends, they're running buddies, they were all enabling each other and hyping each other up. And I was a tough guy for everybody. I really made a fool of myself but I was the, the tough guy and made a name for myself that way and had friends, people who, yeah, I, they weren't, for, in retrospect, very few friends, but it's interesting, one of my one of my oldest friends, and we're still, he just moved to San Diego, flew him out here and he's staying with me. <laughs> so I'm trying to help, I try to help, I tell all my friends who are struggling with their addiction, come get sober, man. I try to be refuge, because I've been sober seven years, I try to be refuge for my friends and like, support and show them you can be sober you can be you can be sober you could have a good life and you can transform because i got sober one of the first people to get sober because my situation was so acute so i got sober young all right congratulations on the seven years of sobriety thank you and i would imagine it wasn't just like a light switch one day that just clicked and all of a sudden you were sober like kind of was or was it? Yeah, I, it was. It was chaos. It was a chaos. I got a. I got what I thought at the time was a big check, and I went on a run. I went on a run in New York, and then a friend of mine passed away a couple months before from an overdose. And then I was like, oh, like hiding from that. And then a couple months later, I got this check and went on like a four-day bender. And the next day, my mom hit me up and was like, hey, you can go to rehab tomorrow. And something switched. I of course talked. To, tried to talk her out of it. And then when I went, I committed to going. And a couple of weeks into rehab, the I realized I didn't have to live like that anymore. Because that was the only life I knew. Not because I, my parents were bad people, but as from 12 to 23, that was the only thing that I knew was the street life and drugs and alcohol. And then how long was that stint in rehab, that first one? 30 days. I only went to one rehab for 30 days. And you, and you didn't relapse after that? No, one. I relapsed in behavior. Right. My, I relapsed in behavior because I was so young and I was, I was, I had no values. I had no values. So that's how I explain it. Getting sober, I wanted to not shoot heroin, but I just didn't. It's not that my parents didn't still values because my brother is very stoic and stand up and my sister is very, they're all very proud and together. But I was just, all I knew was heroin in the street. So when I got sober, I just wanted to not do heroin, but I still wanted to fuck around. I still wanted to steal some shit. I still wanted to like be an asshole. I still wanted to like, so ego driven. I, it took years 
to outgrow that. But they, there's a saying, and I say it all the time, it's 20 miles into the forest, 20 miles out. Um, and it, I'm now seven years, I'll, in a decade, I'll have been, in three years, I'll been, have been sober as long as I used. And I finally feel like I'm, I do things like this. And I do, I live a very cool, normal life. But when I got sober, it was, the, my values were still jacked up. And your brother and your sister, did they go to the same school? So it's interesting. They went to, they went to the same high school. There's such a big age gap; they never overlapped. But my mom put me into. We went to the same elementary school, same junior high school. They had a completely different experience. They had a completely different experience. I was, because of my innate discomfort, I just had a different response. And then trauma and abandonment and all that stuff. And like looking in retrospect and being introspective in years of therapy, I realized like how different those experiences were and why they were different. My parents put me in Catholic old boys high school. Excuse me, that's gotta be in there. <laughs> where I was, uh, where I was a football. I played football, and I was a football star. But again, it was in a white neighborhood. It's in Whitestone, Queens, which is particularly known for being racist. And I just wanted to be a part of. I just wanted to be. I just wanted to have friends. Like I still do. When I don't know when that goes away. But <laughs> I just wanted to have friends. So that was a lot of the racial trauma, man just being called a nigger and chased out of neighborhoods and no niggers here. And it was a lot of racial trauma and, uh, and a lot of illicit drug use. The heroin epidemic and the opiate epidemic in New York is predominantly white people. There's a lot of, there's obviously black drug use and statistically black and white drug use is on the same level, which people don't know that people think. But the pills, the oxys in the thirties and the opanas, led to heroin that was in white, a lot of white neighborhoods. And those were, that's where I was. I started doing those with whole, with suburban white kids. So I'm curious, where did you start to connect with your own culture and your own identity? When I got sober. What was that process like? So the, it's still, it's interesting, still my experience. I've dated white women my whole life because of proximity, this is who I'm next to, or she's next to me. So there's been that interracial thing. But when I got sober, that was right, right around when people started filming the police violence. It was around 2013, when the like Trayvon Martin and all these things were happening and they were all being filmed. And my ex at the time, who was Latina, she would, I would sit in front of this computer, my computer in my office and watch, and I couldn't keep my eyes off of it. And I started to be like, these, they look like me. They're like me. And I've always been, me being from New York City, I've always been felt divine connection to hip hop culture, which is our native, it's our native music, I feel like. It's for someone from Queens, like, it's like a Native American flute is to their culture. Hip hop music is to me, it's my birthright. That's what it feels like. So I always felt connected to hip hop culture, which I believe is a large reflection of black culture, at least in New York City. So I always had that connection, but yeah, when I got sober, I started to feel black and black and fall in love with my blackness, which I fall in love with my blackness the older I get. It's my blackness is flowing and waving and not my skin color, but my love and reverence for who I am that grows daily. What do you love about being black? I think we're the most powerful people on the planet. Is that racist? <laughs> I don't know, but I know about our, I know about our African history enough to know that we were the first kingdoms to ever exist, to know that we have a longer lineage of kingdoms than we do slavery. So I know that, and I know that, so we invented so much and innovated so much 
had this slavery period in at least as an African-American and had this slavery period where my ancestors fought and died. And my grandmother is 85 and she lived through these, some of these experiences. Her grandmother was a slave and we still overcome this. I've never heard my grandmother say anything bad about a white person, never in my life. And we still have this divine nature, still have this influence that we had in our kingdom years. We still have this international influence. We are still, when we're oppressed and we're hated and we still shine, we still shine. Out of all, and in the communities that I'm in, out of all the white people, I still shine. And that's just part, that's just what blackness is. We, no matter what, we like ascend, if we allow ourselves to. Is that racist? I don't know. But that's how I feel, you know what I mean? So you're mention, mentioning that you shine. What are some of the ways that you feel like you shine? What are some of the favorite things about yourself? I like the way my mind works. I like, because of so much failure and struggle, I've, it's hard, it's hard to call yourself wise. I think I'm pretty wise. And people reach to me for counsel. People ask me like, what do I do here? What do you think here? And so I like the way my mind works and I'm introspective and I extrapolate and I break down. I, I break down experiences. And that's what makes me a good coach is that I can break down my experience and break down other people's experience and provide insight and another perspective. I like that I, that I think that way. I like that I think differently. And I like that I'm allowed to think differently. That's part of being a free black man is I'm allowed to think differently and I'm allowed to say what I want. And I feel, I, and that's another thing, I feel free to say whatever the fuck I want. That's a thing I love about myself. And then I like my wit, I'm sharp and I think I'm funny. I think good things about myself, which most of my life I thought bad. Even years, even five years ago, I would just refer to myself as a piece of shit because of all the things that I've done. But the older I get, and the longer I stay sober, and the more I serve, and the better I become as a person, the more I think that I'm pretty, pretty cool. I'm all right. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. I think you're pretty cool too. Thanks, man. So I would love to hear about this process of self-forgiveness that it seems like you've moved through and what that was like for you. Thank God, thank God for 12 step because we have a process, those 12 steps. And I was able to take a look at my life, really take a look at my life, take responsibility for myself. So the first step, this is the foundational principle in my life is I don't blame anybody. I don't even blame those white kids who tortured and tortured me. I don't blame the guy who molested me. I don't blame people, I take responsibility for myself, which some people say, it's victim blaming. Like, I'm not blaming, I'm not telling other people not to blame, I just don't blame. And I clean up my messes when I make them, and I, someone, I don't keep secrets, and I, I'm dedicated to growth, and I never give up. My mom would whisper to me in my sleep and in my drug stupors, and today, at 30 years old, she says, Eric, never give up. And as long as I don't shoot heroin, I get better, and I forgive myself. and. I just like myself more. So that's been the process of forgiveness. And then also, yeah, years of therapy, spiritual practice, loving kindness, meditation. I'm a big proponent of meditation and just spending time in my, inside my own mind, opening, closing the apps, like I say. And the app that tells me I'm a piece of shit is just, it doesn't work anymore. That app is, it's got too many bugs, doesn't work anymore. And I'm just started to grow out of it. Even in my separation, I, I just don't think I'm that bad. But it's really been a lot of meditation, a lot of time spent in my mind and working through that. Congratulations on your transformation, brother. Thank you. That's why I'm a coach. I know what it's like to come from 
one place to where you deserve to be. And I think I deserve to be where I am today. And that wisdom through all the experience that you've accrued, does it help you in being a parent? Absolutely. And I, I worry because my son had, is rambunctious and I don't, there's certain things about me that I don't want him to inherit. And so there's certain behaviors I'm looking for and there's behavioral therapist comes to the house, even if he's not, it's not bad behavior, but he's working with someone to deregulate. And that I just started doing this because he, I want him to be okay. I want him to feel okay. That, that feeling of not being okay that I felt, I just don't want him to feel, I want him to feel secure. I want him to feel secure in his intellect. I want him to feel secure in his race. I want him to feel secure in his ability to be spiritual if he chooses, his ability to not, I, I want him to be a free black man because so much of my life I was in bondage of some sort. And I want a free, I want a free black. But yeah, the, I know what to look for, I think. And do you think that he's receptive to some of the like spiritual things that you try to teach him? If he watches me, my oldest, my, my son, I call it my son, but my ex's son, her oldest is, uh, I meditate with him. He'll meditate with me for 45 minutes. And when my little one is of age, we'll meditate for five minutes and meditation will be a part of his life as long as he allows it and chooses to, but uh, it's a, it's such a huge it's it's I, something i do every day so uh when i'm with him it's just once once he's at the age where he can sit still even one minute let's start with one let's breathe let's I, and that's something i do with him now is look at him and say just breathe and even if we even if he chooses not to take the metaphysical aspects of meditation and yoga and all those modalities and even if he just learns the neuroscience of doubt of regulating yourself and managing your neurotransmitters and creating neural pathways even if he just understands that, I think he'll be on good footing. I'm happy I know that. So he, I can explain that to him. Right on, that's what's up. So I know you're a creative person and you have a big project. Tell me about the podcast, how that got started and what your vision is with it. So it's, it's a, I'm just a, I didn't think of myself as creative for a long time. I didn't, I like people would, I just quote, I can quote it, I've said, I'm not creative. I'm not a creative person because I couldn't draw and I couldn't sing and I couldn't dance. That's why I thought I wasn't creative, but the way my mind works is creative. And the way I use my words is creative. And the cadence in which I use my words is creative, can be creative. And so the start of the podcast, I wanted, and I wanted to be, I want to be a person who can speak about anything. Even if I don't know what I'm talking about, I want to be able to sit across from someone and have a conversation about anything. So my conversation skills, conversational skills are creative. These are things, and, I, and you pra I practice them. This is a craft that I practice. I've recorded 170 episodes of me orating. And public speaking is something that I do regularly, and I'm creative with my words there. How do you tell the same story? How do I tell this story differently over and over with different nuances from a different approach? It's creative. That's the thing with the podcast. That's what I love to do there. And also I'm a free black man. My parents raised free, a free black child and free black man. So I get to say whatever the fuck I want. And I get to say, and I'm not, I don't speak hate into the world, but if I, when I speak about race and I explain to someone that white people taught me about racism, my parents didn't teach me about it. My, my black experience was, it was white people cultivated it and taught me that they hate me. Not all, but some, when I get to say which in the space that I'm in, like my brother in the space that he works, he can't say that. My mom in the space that she's in, she can't say that, but I get to say that. And with mental health, people with mental health challenges, I get to speak for them.
and people who are heroin addicts and people in recovery, I get to speak for that. So that's the, that's the blessing of it. I get to be a voice for people. And I show people that we do get better. We're just trying to love each other and connect with each other. And so that's the podcast, man. It's just, it's, there's episodes that are vloggy. And recently we've been doing some more vloggy stuff. And then there's episodes like I did with you that are just cool conversations. I've done some just interviewee episodes that are just like a talk show. So it's, I've, it's transformed over three years from a bunch of, from a health and wellness podcast to a bunch of homies just talking about life to two homies talking about life to guests every week to guess just a guest podcast to then a monologue and a guest it allows me to be creative just do it i'd get to do whatever the fuck i want to do man that's cool that's cool i never coming from not being able to leave my room because i couldn't feel so depressed or just on heroin to now being able to do and say what i want i love it i love doing it right on so let me ask you a little bit about your san diego experience yeah and where you like to kick it, what vibe you like to be in. Like on a weekend, if you have a free weekend, where do you like to go and what do you 12, like to do? 12 steps. That's what I do here. I'm in, I'm plugged into the San Diego recovery community. I regard myself as someone who actively participates. I speak, every meeting I'm called on to speak, I speak. I'm Eric Reyes. My legacy will be raising free children, liberating other people who are like me, whether it be ethnically, culturally, um, struggles with the same struggle with the same struggles that I have. I want people to feel free, and I want to be a, someone who leads people in that direction. Yeah. And I was just curious, since you are in the spiritual realm, what's your relationship with death, and what do you think happens after you die? That's interesting. My relationship with death is it's complicated because I've lost so many friends that I don't that it doesn't affect me very much when people die. It's kind of, it'll affect me when my family starts dying, God forbid, or Angela, when that, whenever that happens. My relationship to death though, I've seen a lot, yeah, a lot of people have died. There's a little bit of call, like callousness towards it. I've had a bunch of suicide attempts. It's all coming for all of us. That's, I, and actually I've had, I've been having fear that I'm gonna not live a long life. So I want to make the best of this one. But where do I think we go when we die? I think, I think we're energy trans transmuted in other directions. This, we ascend from this body and go to the, the ether or into some other being. Maybe, maybe it's a plant, maybe I'll be that pothos over there. But that, I think that energy leaves this vessel and may go somewhere else. Anything else you wanna add? No, man, I'm good. Beautiful. Thank you, brother. Thanks, man. All right, that's our episode for today. Hope you felt as inspired and in touch with your soul and your essence as I do after having that conversation and listening to all the wisdom and heart energy shared. Do us a favor to spread the vibe of the community by giving this a five-star review, subscribing wherever you're listening and sharing it with a friend. And if you wanna go deeper, like I said at the beginning, you can do that at soulsofsociety.com or at soulsofsociety on all social media platforms. Thanks for being here. Keep building, keep connecting, and believe in yourself.